Book of Matthew. Have you guys, just out of curiosity, do you guys read ahead? Do you try to guess where we're going to go next? It's like if we just finished Matthew 3, did you pick up in your devotional space Matthew 4? That would make sense, right? Does anybody do that? I was thinking this week it would be fun to shoot you guys an email about Thursdays about what we're going to be speaking on on Sunday. Wouldn't that be fun? We'll talk to Trey when he gets back, see if we can make that happen. Because we don't always know, I guess, way out in advance. But it, it would be fun. To me, it's fun to, to ponder and to think. Because more than half of what's going on in the room this morning has absolutely nothing to do with, with, with what's going on here. It's what you're bringing and what you're hearing and what you're sensing through the word, right? That's what you take away. Um, and so to me, it would be interesting to what it, what it could look like if we could get that out to you guys in an email. How many of you guys actually read ANC emails? How many of you guys actually see that it comes from ANC and you're like, no way, I'm not opening that. So it wouldn't work for you. It wouldn't work for Jenny. It's great to have you in church, Jenny. I'm just saying. No, it wouldn't work for some of you guys because we close all that stuff down. But we're in Matthew 4. We covered the baptism of Jesus last, uh, I'm sorry, the temptation of Jesus last week. So if you would turn, or if it's on the screen, let's read in Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17. And I just want to, I want to go a couple of different directions, and it's a little ambitious. Sometimes when you shoot far, you miss, but sometimes you've got to take a long shot. So I want to, I want to kind of see if we can tie a couple of things together that you may not think naturally go together. It's kind of a, an obsession of mine, things that don't go. How do you make them connect? And so we're going to do a couple of different things. But let's begin reading in Matthew 4, verse 12. Interesting little, interesting little section here. It says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Does anybody remember what those refer to? Zebulon and Naphtali? Anybody? I know you know. Tribes of Israel, right? This would have been land that would have been set aside for the tribe of Zebulon, the tribe of Naphtali. That matters for a reason that perhaps misses us, but it, it matters. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali. Now, now Matthew was quoting here literally from the book of Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Or repent, for the kingdom of God is among you, right? Interesting, a couple of major things happen in his life in a very brief summary. He does his earning of the stripes, you might say, whatever it is that he did for 30 years, building furniture, getting, finding his voice, finding his space, waiting on his time. We know he waited patiently because his mom tried to pull the trigger before he was ready, and he pulled the trigger when he was ready at the, at the, at the weddings of, of Canaan, right? We understand the, his temptation, we understand his baptism, and so we're up to this interesting place where he makes this really interesting and odd move. Now, if he was working with John the Baptist, that means he, that would have put him down in the Jordan River area. Now, the Jordan River runs a long way, but John the Baptist was baptizing in a particular area. This is where Jesus was baptized by John. You remember the exchange. You remember the whole, the whole deal, how it had to happen. And then it says, but then he withdrew and he moved. He went to Galilee. He made a move, right? Not like LeBron going back to Cleveland. No basketball fans in here, right? Not like Cat Edmondson moving back to Austin, right? From New York back to Austin. Does anybody know who Cat Edmondson is? The, the, the big move, right? The big move from New York City back to Austin. What does that mean? It just brings huge light, I guess, here. Not like, you're going to get that one? Juan's on it, boy. It was, that, was half, that was a good move. That was half a ring and he caught it. 
But this is a move that matters because if what we're trying to do here is we're trying to track the movement of Jesus, right? We talked about this in the very beginning. We're not just looking at the teachings of Jesus. We're trying to follow the man, Jesus. There's something to be learned by tracking with him when he moves, when he does the things that he does. And so this move to me strikes me as odd. The, the way to build a movement is to stay where the people are. The way to build a movement would have been to stay in the Jordan and parlay all of John's people. We know John was in prison, so take, those, take that following, right? They saw the whole crazy deal with the dove and the whole magical exchange, and these guys are cousins. And Matthew pairs for us the life and career of John, and he runs right next to it, the life and career of Jesus. So it would have made sense to stay in the Jordan River Valley, right, or stay where, where, where they were baptizing people. Or it would have made even more sense, wouldn't it have, to move to Jerusalem, right? I mean, we know that the prophecies from old were that he was going to set up the throne of David again. He was going to set up what had, been, what had been long since lost and the sort of the influence and this place. Thank you, because it was getting downright hot in here, wasn't it? Anybody else feel that? It doesn't matter how cold it is outside. ANC, Bailey is always, always hot. Just saying. But this is a move that matters because what does it mean, just off the top of your head, what does it mean that he moved to a place, he moved literally into darkness? What does this mean? What does this mean to you? Those words... The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What does that mean? Anybody? We like to dialogical sort of develop ideas here in sort of dialogue. What does that mean? Cared about those in the dark. Does it mean that they literally didn't, like, they didn't have any light bulbs in Galilee? No. We're talking something deeper than that, right? So he cared about those in the dark, enough to move into the dark. What else? Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Chad. He didn't apparently see the opportunity or care to take the opportunity to build a big movement, did he? He's always doing these weird moves. He's exiting stage left when things are starting to take off, right? Right when the, the party ticket's coming together, he's opting out, right? Right as the election is coming on or whatever the analogy you want to use, right as the moment emerges and it's perfect, Jesus always kind of does this, you know? There's one point in his career where he turns around literally to those who are following him. He had a movement afoot now. They're following him everywhere he goes. He turns around and he says, you know what? If you can't eat this stuff and drink my blood, then you and I, just, we just don't get each other. And he just totally destroyed a movement. So this is a cardinal move, right? This is an important thing. Anybody else? What does it mean to move into the darkness? Yeah. That's a brilliant point. So he had, a, he had another school he was running, didn't he? And they may have not have been ready. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. This is why we talk it out. Good point. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay, so, okay, so he came to work among the sick and the lost, not the healthy? Something, quote, unquote healthy. Quote, unquote healthy. Good, good. Anybody else? Wow, to go where it was not obvious, right? We want the full plan, don't we? But Jesus is taking it step by step, and he makes an odd move. So all good points. I think, I think what jumps out to me is, is the fact that he moves into a place, into a city that the nations would have been comfortable in. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Prophet, the prophet Isaiah wrote about this from way, way, way back, right? Had he moved into Jerusalem, we know who would have felt comfortable there. 
That would have been a Jewish movement. But Matthew, remember, is articulating for us this Jesus who built a movement that transcended nationality, which at the time would have been deeply controversial. So he literally moves to a city that's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Think Miami, right? Think Los Angeles. Not Austin. We're not there yet. Think New York City. He moves to a place where the cross currents of cultures and nations are literally in one place. He steps away from that place to that center, and he steps into this very odd place. If you're filling out your little blanks in there, my daughters tell me that people love to fill out blanks, and so we do blanks. So we got here. I just wrote it this way. Jesus, makes, Jesus is making his signature move to the margin. His signature move to the margin. If you ever lose track of the man, always look for the margin. You will find him moving towards the margin. What do I mean by margin? The poor, the forgotten, the disenfranchised, those who were out, supposedly. He had a way of taking outsiders and making them insiders and taking insiders and leaving them outside, right? Jesus, this is Jesus making his signature move towards the margin, to the forgotten, to the poor, to the international cities where not one language would have gotten it done, places where they were a mixing of people, right? That's where light belongs, you see. We tend, or I tend, to want to gather light among light, and it's like shining a flashlight when the sun's up or, try, you know, turning a light on outside when it's noon. And, and we, we, we instinctively want to gather among those who think and feel and believe the same way we do, but there's something about light that isn't light until it's surrounded by darkness. And this is the move that Jesus is making. There's a sense in which every other thing in his ministry will follow this move. He is giving us, a, in literary terms, it would be a foreshadow, right? Any, any English majors in here? He's foreshadowing the whole game for us. Light always moves into darkness, right? Health always moves towards unhealth, right? Holiness always moves towards the margin. There's no other kind. There's no other way. There's no other way to do it. This is what Jesus is telescoping for us. There's a sense in which every other thing changes because he takes the whole show back to Galilee. Now, what does that mean? For us, it doesn't mean much. It's, you literally have to find it on a map. But for the people of the time, they would have said, that's not where movements begin. That's not where important stuff happens, right? One of Jesus' disciples literally says, you know, they're walking up and they find him under a tree and he says, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He makes a move to the place where nothing good was assumed to ever come out of. That's what it means. Jesus is showing us that the margin is the center, right? He's recentering the whole game for us. What do you do when Jesus jumps the rails in your life and he makes a move that doesn't make any sense to you? Because to me, this move makes no sense. But what do you do? In your life. This might be loss. This might be failed relationship. This might be disease. This might be setback. This might be financial ruin. This might be an unexpected outcome to something that you were so sure was going to go your way. What do you do when Jesus jumps the rails? And to literally to follow him means to go into darkness where you don't know what's next. That's a bit of a rhetorical question. Has he ever done this in your life? Do you ever have the plan? It's all laid out. Then that. Then that thing happened. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you a story. It's my own story. We own it because it's our love story. Um, we were Bible school students in Dallas, Texas years ago when we were in this weird little school where you weren't allowed to date. I know. Whatever. It didn't make any sense at the time. It's making a lot of sense now that my daughters are almost college age, but I'm just saying. <laughs> 
But we couldn't date. We were both part of, some of you have heard the story. We were both part of student government. And I was told by the dean, don't date anybody on student council. So that just took those 10 people and ruled them out. And so we launched on this year of doing ministry for the student body and the faculty, doing all this stuff. And I just knew everybody in the room was un- undateable, right? No way. Well, there's this girl in the room from Chicago that, that I had caught sight of, but she wasn't interested. And so I thought, well, I can't date her anyway, so let's just, you know, do our deal. And, and so we got to know each other and fell hopelessly head over heels in love. Never held hands, never kissed, never put my arm around her, never did any of that stuff that, you know, we all assume this is what you have to do, right? Graduate from Bible school with not a penny to my name. Literally, I didn't have a car. I had nothing. I was working third shift helping move office buildings in order to get enough money to pay my next student bills and, you know, and, to, and to eat on Sundays because the cafeteria didn't feed us on Sundays. Or we would talk people into swagging us donuts or whatever. It was lean, let's just say. Fell in love. Graduation weekend, my parents in town, her parents in town. We hang out together. It seemed so natural because this was a thing that was just seemed to just be so right, except there were so many things that were so wrong about it. I had no job. I had no car. I had no career. I had, a, had a, a career track lined up that I opted out of because I sensed that the Lord was saying, go back to Mexico, go back to the place where you last had a clear sense of what I called you to do. How do you tell this only daughter's father, you know, from a good Midwest family that you're in love with his daughter and you have nothing? You got, you got nothing. I couldn't have afforded a ring. I could barely afford a bus ticket back to Mexico. No plane, no option for plane. It was about, I don't remember, like a $75 ticket to get from Dallas, Texas back to Durango, Mexico. It's like a 36-hour trip. It's all I had. It made no sense. But in a very profound and meaningful way that sort of transcended or maybe preceded understanding, it made incredible sense. It was just right. You know what I'm talking about, right? It was just, you just, you just know that it was right. It was darkness in a sense because I didn't know the details, but I knew it was where I needed to be. And so literally in a matter of a single night, we went from, so we've never dated, uh, but like, we should, get, we should get married. Like, I know, that's weird. I'll tell you another story. It seems like there's a common thread in my life. All the great things that happened to us kind of happened this way. I don't get the plan. I don't get the playbook, as it were. We're calling audibles on the field. I know that's a bad analogy this weekend in, in, in Austin. It's not a good weekend to be a football fan. I know, I understand, but... That's how it all, always happens to me. You read the play in the moment. You make the call in the moment. I'll tell you another story. It never makes sense to take your kids out of school in the middle of a school year, does it? Doesn't, does it? Here's one. I'll one-up you. It never makes sense to take homeschool kids and drop them into public high school in the middle of a school year, does it? Everybody knows that, right? That's like, no, yeah, if, it, if, if the can says worms, don't open it, right? You guys all know that. This time last year, we just knew that God was telling us to move to Austin. Things were moving in that direction, and we knew what God was saying, and there was no clarity. There was no sense in which we could call the outcome because you just don't do this. You don't take teenagers out of homeschool and t- drop them into pub- You don't drop them into Hayes. Hayes is bigger than the first college I ever went to, Hayes High School, right? Doesn't make sense, but somehow deep down inside, in a way that either transcended understanding or preceded understanding, it just made intuitive sense. It was the right move for us. How did we know? How did we know that we wouldn't look back and say that was the biggest mistake we ever made for our daughters? How did we know? I've got five daughters, in case you didn't know. Big price to pay for making bad moves with kids, right? How did we know? We just knew. But it was somewhere else than in our heads, and here's where I want to go. It made sense in a deep, intuitive way 
that didn't make sense to our understanding. And you can always tell when it doesn't make sense to understanding because you tell people and they look at you like, what? You're going to do what? Don't, no. You, bro, you got to have a job to ask for his, oh, his daughter's hand in marriage. No, don't do this, right? You, you got to have something lined up before you make moves like that. But one of the most enduring truths about Jesus, and you will find this to be true whether you study the book of Matthew or just following through life, he will always ask us to step into a blind spot, won't he? The next little blank there in your book. Jesus will usually end up asking us to trust blindly. He has this knack for not being satisfied with just obedience that comes from understanding. He wants more, right? If he didn't, this would be such an easy game. It would be such an easy thing, but he wants more. He's always looking for more. Now, the religious establishment of the time, the great arch-philosophical enemy of Matthew as he writes the story of Jesus, would have looked at Jesus and said, no, 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 that's not how it happens. No, no, no. Not from Galilee, not from Nazareth, no way. They look at Jesus and they say, no, 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 margin? Like the, no, 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 no. We're looking for the descendant of David to take a throne. We're looking for someone to lift the Roman boot off our neck. And, and before we look at them and say, you guys were dense, because that's what we always do with the scribes and the teachers and the Pharisees in the New Testament, right? Before we do that, I want to just briefly ask you to look at Isaiah 9, okay? Now, just if this is not in your notes, just listen as I read along. This is the, this is the passage that Matthew was quoting. Now, listen. Nevertheless, this is Isaiah 9 writing, uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah writing, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in dark in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Word for word quotation from the book of Matthew, quoting Isaiah. But then it reads on further. And I'm just guessing that if you're watching the happenings in Palestine at the time, you're going to do exactly like everybody else did. You're going to be looking for something to happen here that's going to end up happening here. Because look at these following verses. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Does that remind you of December? If it doesn't, you haven't been to Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A recently. Just saying. The place creeps me out. Verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and the peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time on forever. So the Pharisees and everyone else who's looking for someone on the Messiah radar is looking for someone to do those things. But deeply embedded into that same prophecy is the word that this is going to happen in an unexpected place. And it's going to be all about darkness. And it's going to be all about popping up on the radar where you least expect it. And they even named the city in which it was going to happen, which is why Jesus moves to Galilee. What's interesting is that the people who were looking for the Messiah to relieve the suffering of the day were seeing, but they weren't perceiving. And there's no blindness worse than that which those who think they see suffer. And here's what happens. We think we've got an eye on it, and it happens off the radar. Let's just make this downright uncomfortable because we're deep in this now. What are the areas of your life in which you are being led, not by your head, but by your heart or by your guts, in a direction that Jesus is asking you to go? What are the areas in your life where your head's not fixing it, your head's not solving it, but you know deep down inside you need to take that step? Jesus is going to ask us to do that, isn't he? He's going to ask us to step into space, into that blind space. 
let's look at this from another angle. You guys know I always like to drag around books and tell you what I've been reading. It don't know why, but I've been reading uh, Emotional Intelligence written back in the 90s. Anybody ever read this? Any soft science people from the 90s, you know exactly what this is all about. I'll read you the cover, and then you, maybe you'll go pick it up. It's in its 10th anniversary edition. They've sold millions and millions of this. Emotional intelligence, why it can matter more than IQ. See, in the 80s and 90s, we thought IQ, hardwiring, was everything as it related to success in the end. And then they come along and they realize, wait, whoa, 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 hang on. There's something other than IQ. And they called it emotional intelligence. Goldman calls it emotional intelligence here. He goes deep into the brain structure. And just oblige me, if you will, for a moment. It seems that we have more than one brain as human beings. We're going to get back to Matthew. Just hang on. We have two independent minds, as it were. One is called the limbic system. Does anybody know that word? The limbic system, right? Lizard brain, right? That brain stem part. Put your hand back here behind your head. The part behind your head that sort of sits down at the top of your spinal cord, surrounded by like a donut of tissue, that's got that sort of primal response, that fight or flight mechanism, right? Those deep, instantaneous, axiomatic responses in situations. Touch something hot, your hand comes back. You didn't think about that. Your lizard brain knew hot, pull hand back, right? It seems we have two minds. One is the limbic system, which is this, and one is the neocortex. Put your hand up here if you don't know where your neocortex is. Don't slap your kids in the neocortex. Usually if you need to slap them, it's because they're operating out of their lizard brain, and it's not going to do any good to slap them in the neocortex. I'm just saying. I have a bit of an interest. I'm not a hard science guy. You guys know this, but when it comes to neurochemistry, I could go back to school right this very second and study this stuff. is so meaningful and so interesting. We have two minds. One is responsible for your breathing, right? Do you have to think about your next breath? Probably not. Do you have to think about a situation like happened today on the road coming up here to church? There was a bad accident right on 1626. A couple of cars tangled and cars went off the road. What happens when you drive by that? Instantly you become hyper aware. You grab the wheel, 10 and 2, right? Just like you learned in school back in the 80s and the 90s when we learned to drive. 10 and 2, sorry. I'm 10 and 2. <laughs> 10 and 2 if you're sitting on the dashboard, I guess. <laughs> But the hair on the back of your neck stands up. A whole system of responses happened that sort of precede cognition. I didn't think about it. You see somebody in distress, you know instantly. Remember the video where the guy breaks his leg in the football and literally his leg just kind of dangles around? And everybody in nas- watching national TV and all the footage, your, your stomach turns. Why? Something about that, you just know primarily from a very deep part in your something coming through that that is not natural bending for a human body and that is gross and that's nasty and that guy needs help, right? You know what I'm talking about. So... Part of our mind is this limbic system. It's what gets fired. Now watch this. It gets, it's what gets fired and summoned to response in sexual encounters. It's where your self-defense mechanism comes from. It's where your emotions come from, right? Things that make you get emotionally engaged. But it's not our only mind, right? Remember, we tapped our forehead too. There's the neocortex, which comes along. It's a whole system, a series of layers of neural de- neurological development that happen after the lizard brain or the limbic system, it's responsible for things like appreciating beauty, for complicated algorithms that help your app run the way you want it to run so you don't get lost with an Apple map in the wrong side of town. Somebody had to think that through. That's neocortex work, right? It's the thing that is able to come up with a measured and a rational response. It's where forgiveness comes from. Now think about this. If the reason that you are living in unforgiveness is a primal response to your surroundings, you can't talk yourself out of that. You've got to get your neocortex and your limbic system to figure out a way to work together. I don't know why I'm saying that, but it may be for somebody that makes sense. It's where forgiveness comes from. It's where planning comes from. It's where, you know, study comes from. 
It's where, check this out, deferring pleasure for the moment for a greater good that some of our kids are incapable of. You guys have kids like that. Thinking with the limbic system. This is the neocortex. The fascinating thing about this is that some of us would look at this and say, why do we even need this? This is what always gets us into trouble. Chad told me this week at my house. We were, Chad and Mitch, we were having a conversation. It doesn't seem like we need it. Why do we need it? What would happen if we didn't have it? What would happen if we didn't have the ability to regulate body temperature and breathing without thinking about it? So it's not that it gets us out of whack and constantly in trouble. It's that somehow this deep sort of precognitive knowing needs to work in function with our thinking and our understanding. And this is going to have a lot to do with whether we follow Jesus well or not. Here's why I'm going into this. Irrational fury comes from your limbic system, right? The guy who comes home thinks his daughter's at work. The house is dark. She's in her bedroom. She's going to jump out and surprise him for his birthday. He comes down the hallway, hears noise, pulls a nine millimeter and kills the first thing that moves and it's his daughter. That's limbic, right? It's not thinking. That's a limbic, that's a limbic response. Rage comes from your lizard brain. Rage, this irrational rage. Somebody cuts you off and you're incensed that somebody would risk your family so you doubly risk your family to pass into head, head on traffic because you're going to show the guy who put your family at risk. You, you get what I'm saying. Makes zero sense, right? Self-defense. People who respond in self-defense when they're not being attacked. People who you merely bring up a question and they feel it's attack and so that all the claws come out, right? These are limbic responses. And lest we say, and before we say, these things are unhelpful, I want to balance this. These are called hijackings of metacognition. This is when your brain, lizard brain, takes over your ability to think. But this is also what Jesus is going to summon to the fore when he says, follow me. Because if you're Matthew the tax collector and you've got a career laid out and he comes up and puts white knuckles down on your table and says, follow me, there is no metacognitive way to look at that and say, this makes sense. And yet Jesus is going to go there, isn't he? He's going to take us back to Nazareth. He's going to take us back to Galilee. He's going to take us to places in the dirt on our face, in the face of sin and the Mosaic law, crushing a young woman. And he's going to take a different route out. And we're just going to have to trust because it's not going to work for us here. There are some things we know so deeply that we can't explain, like the man who's caught in a whiteout coming down from Denver, Colorado. I read about this this week. He pulls over because he can't see anything. But as the snow begins to lift, before he gets back out into traffic, he just waits it out. When the, when, the, when the sun finally comes out and he's able to see what's happening, about 200 feet in front of him, there was a horrendous accident, multiple deaths. What told him to pull over? Something deep, pre-thought, pre-cognitive. Something deep told him. So your third blank there, and we're going to move in a, we're moving, moving somewhere important here. Sorry about that. It takes our intuition as well as our understanding to follow Jesus. Sometimes this is where discipleship goes wrong. In the beginning for us, it makes perfect sense. We follow this guy. Everything is electric and full of life. Everything is new. Everything is amazing. We can't get enough of church. And then at some point, he's going to ask us to give something up. And we're going to say, that doesn't make sense. But I love that thing. He's going to say, trust me. And we're going to say, how about no? And we're going to get stuck. Because he's going to appeal to something that goes deeper in our history than just our ability to rationalize. Bottom line is it takes both to follow Jesus. It takes both. Emotions have to interact with thought, and thought has to interact with emotions. We have to lead from our heart. We have to lead from our guts, and yet sometimes we have to stop and say, we need to come up with a plan. It's both. This move to Galilee, this one makes no sense to me in a neocortex sort of way. Wrong city, guy. Wrong city. This is like trying to be a blues musician 
in Seattle. Bro, go to Memphis. That's where it happens, right? This is like trying to be a singer-songwriter in L.A. No, come to Austin. It's like trying to be a, a samba group in Austin. No, go to Miami. Wrong move. Jesus moves to Galilee, and it doesn't make sense. He had a government to set up. He had a whole series of prophecies to fulfill. But he opts for darkness, doesn't he? He opts for the margin. And he takes us to that uncomfortable place where hungry people are really willing to hear and to lead out with following and not just understanding. Every single one of Jesus' problems with the people around him was because he came in clash with their thinking. But the people who could follow from an intuitive space got him, didn't they? Prostitutes, tax collectors, Samaritans, people caught in sin. Need we go on? These people weren't looking at him in a way that says, you know, hey, we're all good, I've done everything. No, no. In a deeply wounded and vulnerable place, intuitively they knew this man had the answer. The woman for 12 years fought with a flow of blood, no medical solution for her, permanently ceremonially unclean, permanently outside of the city because she could not be clean. And in her society, that was an undoable wrong, presses through the crowd, touches his hand because intuitively she knew if she could just touch something that was touching Jesus, everything would change. Okay, take a deep breath. We're going to go a different direction. We've done our neurochemistry for the day. There'll be a quiz next week. And you guys are tight today. Let's talk about something else for a second. We often sit down with the Bible, don't we? We try to understand Jesus, and so we read it in a cognitive way, right? We sit down with the Word, and we try to figure out, okay, what is he saying? What does it mean? Before we even sat with the landscape of movement that is what Jesus is trying, or the, the writers are trying to describe, we want to understand it. We want to break it down. We want to talk about what does it mean? This word means that. And in the Greek, that means this. And in the Hebrew, this means that. And so we play our metacognition card, don't we? And how many times do we actually experience Jesus that way? Some people do. Most of us get frustrated because we're reading our Bible, looking over the fence, thinking, I wonder if the Joneses are getting more out of this dead daily thing we do when we read this thing, trying to understand Jesus. And then we drop it all fifth Sundays and we go and we serve somebody. We paint a wall. We feed a homeless person. And all of a sudden, it comes to life. Not this way. It just comes to life because it's a landscape and Jesus is moving in the landscape and all we have to do is see what he's doing and follow what he's doing. And I'm just going to say it. And sometimes we don't even have to understand what he's doing. Just follow what he's doing. We build a frame. Jesus doesn't fit. So we either chuck the frame or we ignore passages that run counter to what we thought it was, right? This is what the Pharisees are essentially doing when they say, no, no, no. The Messiah is going to set up a government. He's not going to live in Nazareth and work in Galilee, he's going to set up a government. So we chuck out, we throw our frame out. In a recent meeting with Restore Group leaders at uh, the Point Church on a Wednesday night, I think it was, one of those rare midweek services that ANC has. Hey, we've had a few lately. In fact, we had two that week. It was weird seeing everybody four times a week or three times a week. We talked about one of the ways that the ancients one of the disciplines that they put into play that helped young people coming into faith understand the things of faith. Um, because, w- you know, one of the challenges in discipleship and in communities of faith, whatever size or whatever century you're in, is how do you take people who are new to the faith and bring them along people who have a deep, deep sort of trajectory here? And how do you, how do you bring novitiates or new people into the faith well? How do you birth them well is the question. Well, one of the great ways that the church has done it for about 800 years is called Lectio Divina. Has anybody ever heard of this? Anybody ever have a college professor who was a little more liturgical than maybe your parents or the church you grew up in? Lectio Divina. In Latin, it literally means divine reading. And here's what it is. It's in your notes there. It's a simple way of reading the word and asking a series of questions 
Here's the first question you ask. Number one, what is Jesus doing? What ca- no, I'm sorry, what catches my attention in the text? What catches my attention? Looking at these passages in ways that don't try to understand it immediately, but stepping back and say, what catches my attention? For you, it might be the tax collector. It might be the boat. It might be the crowd. It might be the fish. It might be the fact that they, for some reason, said it was in the late afternoon. Or it might be the fact that it was Passover, and you're not sure what that means. But you read a passage, and the first question you ask yourself is, what catches my attention? No right, no wrong. No PhD in theology going to get this better than you. Soccer moms are on equal ground, right? Just simply as a human being, in this passage, what catches my attention? You answer that in a group setting, right? Everybody takes a, tr- it takes a crack and answers that. Then you read it aloud again and you ask it another question. Now watch where we're going. Question number two. Not what does it mean, but what is Jesus doing? What is the man doing? What is the man up to, right? Question number two. Everybody has a chance to answer that. You go around in a circle and now all of a sudden you're hearing, like what we hear when we ask open questions here, you're hearing different things and different assumptions brought to the word that you hadn't thought of. It had never occurred to me that maybe Jesus goes back to Galilee because maybe the disciples weren't ready for the big, big time, big tent yet. We learned that this morning in dialogue. That's what this is asking you to do. First question, what catches my attention? Number two, what is Jesus doing? Number three, now watch this. What do I need to do with what I have just seen? Not, what does it mean in Greek? Not, what do you need to do about this? Not, what are the three points and three bullet points that need to be underlined in It's not sermonizing. This is a different sort of texture. And let me explain to you why this makes sense. The pre-enlightenment minds knew that you can't just sit down and cognate about Christ. You've got to get yourself in spaces where intuitively you live this out, right? Does that make sense? And so one of the earliest practices that they surround us with is this, simply this. Get together in groups and read the word and ask three questions and don't get preachy and just walk away and do something about what you just saw. Let me tell you a story. When I was doing groups for a small church in Houston, we took all of our Spanish-speaking groups together, and they were constantly begging for more material. We need more videos. We need more books. Our groups are running on material. I got so sick of coming to church because there was always a line at the booth. People wanted to know what videos, and those things are expensive. And so I'm like, look, do this. Scrap all the material. When you gather, read a passage. Ask it three questions. Everybody gets to answer it in a turn, in a round robin, so sit in a circle and just try this for a while. The last time I sat with a group of leaders who were doing this, it was with 19 different small group leaders. We got together in a house and had a big cookout. And we did this. We read a passage. I don't remember. I remember it was the book of Mark, but I literally walk into the room, no preparation necessary. You just read a passage and you answer these questions. And you hold everybody back so that nobody gets preachy or teachy. 19 people connected to the book of Mark in 19 different ways that you as a preacher can't do in 19 sermons. One guy sitting next to me had just got dumped by his girlfriend. His heart was broken. He needed hope. He found hope. It's what he heard. It's what he saw moving in the text. The girl next to him had just gotten engaged to somebody else. She didn't need hope. Everything was made of pixie dust for her. Everything was amazing and electric. She needed something else. Amazingly, that's what Jesus was doing in the text, and that's what she latched onto. And I remember sitting at the end of this experiment thinking, I could not have hit 19 targets if you gave me 19 weeks to preach 19 sermons, because by the time I get to your sermon, you'd be at some other place because Jesus is always on the move and it's always about seeing what he's up to and it's always about just following that thing. Why are we talking about this? Here's the deal. If you're going to intuit a life of discipleship and follow Jesus from your heart and your guts, you're gonna need more than just your mind to do it. 
You're going to need to soundboard things with people around you. You're going to need to understand what community looks like because here's the, the raw truth. I'm just going to say it, and it's offensive now, but you can't be trusted with this whole game of following Jesus, just you and your mind. You just can't be. That's why we've got ancient practices that we bring ourselves to. I get up on some days and it feels absolutely like it makes perfect sense. And I'm completely off track. And some days I get up and I just know I don't want to do this thing, but God is saying, go say that word to your wife as much as you don't want to do it. And the whole day opens up and life changes and the air changes in the home because I just knew before thinking and why it wasn't right and she was wrong and I was right and it's her job to apologize. You just know in your guts, go do that thing. That's what Jesus is asking you to do. Does that make sense? Here's what I'm saying. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to take more than your head. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is recorded doing some totally unconventional things. You will find this as we spend the next 17 years in Matthew, or whatever. He does some deeply counterintuitive things. But the amazing thing is that it's beginning to make sense to us now because something about the man appeals to us, and we know in a deep sense that if we can just follow him, it'll all make sense in the end. What are you facing? What are you facing right now that's asking you to do more than just understand it? What are you facing? It's bigger, than, it's bigger than your ability to get your head around it. What are you up against? How can we lay that down today? As a people, as a church. How can we lay that down and say, I'm willing. I don't understand, but I'm willing. How can we put into play the whole way that we're designed there are things that are going to fly under your thoughts that are going to, you're just going to know are right in ways that you can't even explain. They make perfect sense in the rearview mirror. Perfect sense, right? I think we know how to trust. I think it comes natural. We had it when we were kids. You stand on the stairs and jump off. You have no concern whether dad's strong enough to catch you. You just know that he is, right? How do we get back to that? Because I'm just going to tell you, I think that's the next step in discipleship for all of us. It isn't a new process or process or discipleship manual. It's getting back to that place on the stairs or in that place on the dock where you know if dad says the water's fine and you're going to make it, then it's just good enough and it makes enough sense. Jesus makes a wrong turn that makes perfect sense. They say there's not a dead end if it takes you somewhere you needed to go, right? So if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to... We've committed to this. If we're going to follow Jesus in the book of Matthew, we're going to have to trust and we're going to have to go there. And one of the brilliant ways of doing that is just to get yourself in a community that just, just does that. Just do that. Just make, you know, people say, well, I can't lead a life group or, or a restore group because I don't know all the answers. Guess what? People who know all the answers make rotten restore group leaders. It's true. It really is true. But people who get together and say, man, I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling this thing. And it's moving right now. And there seems to be some focus on that for me. And I'm just going to go there with that and We'll see what's next. Those are amazing people to do life with because it makes intuitive sense. Pray with me.